The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Nicolette Hahn Nyman. She is a sustainable food and farming expert. She is the author, most recently, of the book we're going to be talking about today, titled Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production, The Manifesto of an Environmental Lawyer and a Vegetarian-Turned-Cattle Rancher. Now, what's interesting is prior to her speaking and writing career, Nicolette Hahn-Nyman was invited by Robert Kennedy Jr. to serve as senior attorney for the Waterkeeper Alliance, which is one of my favorite organizations for protecting the environment. And as I mentioned earlier, she is dedicated to protecting our food system, making it more sustainable, and like me, she believes that few issues are more important than what and how we eat. So welcome, Nicolette. Oh, thank you. I'm really pleased to be here, and I loved your introduction, so thank you for that. Oh, you're so welcome. I could have gone on with your interesting history, but I figured we'll just get into that as we go. Yes. One of the things that seems to me, you know, as a dietitian, I get these questions all the time about what should I eat, and it seems to me that the question of the day is whether or not we should be eating beef, and the concerns really come from an environmental or climate concern, human health, or simply the compassionate role. But there has been a lot of research recently, which you talk about, and I'd like to delve into, regarding climate concerns. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, should we be concerned about eating beef from a climate perspective? Well, I think that is kind of the issue that is sort of rising to the surface in the public dialogue about I mean, really, probably among all foods, it seems like it's almost the most topical, but definitely when you're talking about meat and beef, the climate concern often comes very, you know, at the top of people's radar screens. And so in my book, Defending Beef, I delve into it in a lot of detail because I think there's an enormous amount of misinformation surrounding this and misunderstanding. Very often the issue is reduced down to just talking about methane, Mm-hmm. And it is certainly the most important climate change gas when you're talking about beef. All food production has a climate change impact. I think that's an important point for everyone to understand. And a lot of factors go into determining what that impact is. You know, everything from is the crop irrigated, does it have agricultural chemicals on it? All of these things have uh, climate change impact. And how far is it transported? How long is it stored? How much is it prepared or processed? All these things actually add up, you know, to create the climate change impact of any given food. So there was interesting research in Sweden that showed that you could have a variation in the greenhouse gas impact of any given food by a factor of 10. And they were looking at specifically like the carrot. So this was talking about vegetables based on how it was grown and where it was grown and all this kind of thing. So I think it's really important to always remember a lot of factors go into any food's climate impact. Now, when we talk about beef, the carbon dioxide impact is fairly minimal, especially if you're talking about 
grass-fed beef, and especially if it's not transported a long distance because uh, there isn't much carbon impact when you're talking about beef, and most of that comes from transport and from the feeds. So if it's not fed feeds and if it's not transported long distance, there's pretty much no uh, carbon dioxide impact to speak of. And the same is true of the nitrous oxides. So the nitrous oxide impact that comes from beef would really just be from the feeds. And it's fairly minimal again, but if you're talking about totally grass-fed beef, there's really none of that. So it, it all kind of boils down to the methane. And the question is, you know, how big is the methane impact and Can it be mitigated? And is it worth it? And the argument I make in the book is that, first of all, the the methane number is a lot smaller than people tend to believe. The official number from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, which is also the number that's used in the United Nations climate change impact, so it's sort of the internationally accepted number for the United States, is that all of the ruminant animals in the United States combined So all domesticated cattle for beef and dairy, all domesticated bison, all goats and sheep, all combined are about 2% of the global warming uh, emissions for the United States. And the majority of that is from the methane, and it is from the enteric emissions, so that from the digestive processes. So there's a lot of research that's focusing all around the world on what can be done to mitigate that, and it's been found that you can, various different things, everything from how they're being managed on the landscape to nutritional supplements that can be provided to the animals, can reduce that pretty significantly, 25 to 30% for pasture management, for example. And there's some research in Australia that shows that you can um, dramatically reduce methane emissions by something you can add to the mineral lick that they're typically licking, uh, you know, the salt lick. So my feeling is that the methane is is not an intractable problem, and and I think the number, you know, the 2% uh, number is just a lot smaller than most people think it is. Mm -hmm. And I would think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think that cattle raised in a feedlot situation where they are eating grain versus cattle that are allowed to be on pasture would be different. Would you agree? Well, interestingly, the the research, I don't delve into into that very much in the book because there's such a um, sort of a a split in the research Mm -hmm. that I really didn't believe there was a credible consensus on either side on that issue. And again, if you break down the different global warming gases, whether you're talking about carbon dioxide or methane or nitrous oxide, the impact is different, and it is greater for feedlot cattle for both the carbon dioxide emissions and for the nitrous oxide emissions. But for the methane emissions, there's a division in the research, and there's some that shows that it's a greater impact, actually, if they're totally grass-fed, because apparently the totally grass-based diet actually results in a greater amount of methane being emitted in the digestive processes. But I've seen studies that totally refute that claim. So I don't know if that's even true or not, but there's a kind of a split in the in the science on that. So for me, that question is unresolved, mm-hmm. but there's no question that the total amount of the impact, the total global warming impact is a lot less than people tend to believe and that it can be reduced. Mm-hmm. And if we just look at one factor, 
Mm-hmm. I think we make a mistake. I know we do this in nutrition all the time. Exactly. You know, we, we kind of narrow down and we just have this tunnel vision and we look at one component. Exactly. But looking at the bigger picture, as you do so well in this book, makes it clear that the only kind of beef I certainly recommend to consumers is beef that has been grass-fed and grass-finished for all of the reasons outlined in the book. Yeah, and I think just looking at the global warming issue and especially the methane issue with respect to beef and trying to decide whether you should eat beef or not at all is a huge error because then you're ignoring the literally dozens of other considerations that you should be taking into consideration about what to eat, whether it's the nutrition or even just the enjoyment of the food, you know, something that often gets ignored in these discussions. But also, as an environmental lawyer, and that's really my my background, sort of a lifelong environmentalist, I majored in biology in college and have been active in environmental causes since high school. You know, it's kind of the, the driving primary passion of my life. And to me, when I look at the environmental issues surrounding beef, because I've been living this and working on this for so long now, it's really clear that the climate change issue is important, but it is just one of many considerations. And there are so many ecological benefits to well-raised cattle, and especially when they're on grass. So if we just look at that single issue and use that to make the decision, I think we're making a bad decision. Yeah, I agree with you totally. Now, I want to talk a little bit about your work with waterkeepers because I've been so impressed with their work over the years and since you were so deeply involved with it, what kind of lessons did you take away from those years as an attorney looking at environmental abuses related to livestock production? Well, when I arrived at Waterkeeper, it was still just a very small organization. I think I was the either the second or the third official, I was the third, yes, I was the third official employee hired, and I was the first person hired as a lawyer for the organization, and it became a, a much bigger organization now, but it's, a, it's an umbrella for all of the water keepers, you know, the bay keepers and river keepers all around the world, of which there are, I don't know, I don't know the number now, it was over 100 when I left the job, but What we were doing was we were attempting to serve as kind of support for all the different keeper organizations. And we began focusing on, Bobby Kennedy was already very focused on the livestock issue when I arrived, sort of, you know, the environmental impact of poultry and livestock operations. Because in his travels around the United States, he would often hear from the local citizens of any, you know, community where they were, you know, focused on protecting the water there, that their biggest problem was from the livestock and poultry sector. And he felt that this was kind of being un, you know, not being addressed. It was not being addressed by the government. The government wasn't enforcing even laws that were on its books, you know, that are on our books, <laughs> you know, the American citizens' uh, rights to have the environment protected. And nonprofit organizations were not really focused on this either. And so he wanted our organization to lead the charge in this. And he asked me to spearhead that campaign, to create a campaign against the pollution from the industrialized livestock sector. And so that's what I did for the next two years. 
And I was working on a lot of different fronts. We were doing citizen grassroots organizing. We were doing litigation. We were trying to influence regulations and getting them enforced because there's actually many very good environmental laws in the United States, but they're only as good as, you know, how well funded they are and how much political will there is to enforce them. Right. So a lot of what we were actually meeting I remember a very memorable meeting we had in Iowa, for example, with several members of the Attorney General's office and with the director of the Department of Natural Resources there. And basically, we were just confronting them and saying, why isn't the environmental law being enforced here? And that was a lot of the the kind of work we were doing. And so my time there was really spent just trying to make this an issue on the national environmental agenda, both for the government and for environmental organizations and in every state. And I left the job after two years with a kind of a determination to, I'm not sure if I knew I would be working on this for the rest of my life, <laughs> but, but I knew I was going to work on it for a while because it was just something that had really um, become a great passion for me because it, it's such a, a major issue and there was very little being done on it. So, that was probably, you know, to me it was this um, enormous environmental issue that wasn't on the radar screens for most people. Yeah. Really, there are very few organizations that speak up for protecting our water, which happens to be our number one nutrient. I think a lot of people forget that, but yeah. it's extremely important work. So thank you for that. And I think that your book does a great service in looking at how we raise our food, in this case specifically beef, and how our environment is impacted. And you've outlined several areas where you think the most work needs to be done. So we can go through those, but let me remind our listeners that we are speaking with Nicolette Hahn Nyman. She is an attorney. She is a cattle rancher with her husband, Bill Nyman, and she is the author most recently of Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production, the Manifesto of an Environmental Lawyer and Vegetarian Turned Cattle Rancher. So let's go through some of these issues because I think that For many of us, we need to be more aware, I think, in helping ourselves drive a smarter choice in the Mm -hmm. marketplace. Mm -hmm. So grazing management. You know, I have seen the feedlots in eastern Colorado, and I have seen dairy cattle on these confined facilities out in California. And it's frightening, really, to think about the dust, the drugs these animals are given, and they're really not grazing. They're eating out of a trough that's filled with grain. So if you were in charge, and you are certainly with your husband, in looking at how you manage grazing on your own ranch, what constitutes good grazing management? Well, first of all, just to address what you were just saying a second ago, Melinda, absolutely people need to understand that a huge percentage of, especially the dairy cattle actually in the United States, and also at the final phase of their lives, the beef cattle, you know, for the vast, over 90% of the beef in the United States basically goes to feedlots for the last portion of its life and is fed grains. So the animals are not grazing, and that right there is a problem. You know, the book, Defending Beef, the whole book is arguing that basically the more that really any grazing animals are grazing, that there are lots of ecological benefits to that. And in fact, I'm even arguing we need those animals there um, and doing these things. And so part of our problem with the system is just that we don't have enough grazing going on. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then as far as where it is occurring, you know, where we do have grazing in the food system, we need to do it better. And one of the things that I've really come to believe over the last 15 years of working on this issue is that people often will attribute things to grazing animals that are not actually intrinsically a problem with grazing animals, and especially cattle. And they'll look at, for example, soil erosion or compacted soils or essentially badly grazed areas, and they'll say, well, that's because you have cattle here. And I would answer to that, especially after having lived on this ranch for the last 12 years and having visited lots of ranches around the country that are really well managed, I would say, no, that's the result of badly grazed areas. That's not from grazing. And what I'm now convinced of is that when you manage them well, it's not just not damaging, but it's actually beneficial. So the cornerstones of good grazing, as I see it, and you know, I'm not the leading expert in the world on good grazing. There are people who are really are truly experts in answering your question that you just asked. But I know that what we believe and what I think are kind of the, the fundamental you know, basics for good grazing is that the animals should be regularly, should be relatively uh, densely congregated and that they should be moved frequently. And that allows each area that is grazed to get both the benefit of the grazing and then the, the requisite amount of rest. So vegetation needs benefits from being grazed, and the soil where the vegetation is growing benefits in multiple ways from the grazing uh, activity and from the other impacts that the animals have on the land, basically from their hooves and from their manure. There are multiple benefits that come from that to the soils. But if they're there too long or if they're there continuously, it's damaging. So you have to basically move the animals regularly and frequently, and then you have to give the land a lot of rest. So if you want to just illustrate that, a quick and easy example, if you had a 365-acre ranch and you divided it in half (laughs) and you had the animals grazing one half, you know, for half of the year and the other half for the other half of the year, or even if you you moved them back and forth regularly, you'd still be grazing each parcel for, you know, over 160 days a year and you'd be uh, letting it rest maybe for 160 days a year, but you'd be having that impact for a lot of days. In contrast to that, if you divided up the parcel into 365 plots of one acre, then each parcel would only be grazed for one day and would be resting for 364 days a year. So you'd get the, the benefit of the impact, but you would also get the benefit of the rest. You need both. Mm-hmm. And surely by having better grazing management, we're also protecting our water. Absolutely. One of the big points that I try to emphasize again and again in the book and in my speeches is that water is actually one of the most important resources to consider when we're thinking about food production issues. And you have to think about both quantity and quality. Is any human activity wasting water, using too much of it, and is it polluting water? And when it comes to well-managed grazing, there's very good evidence, lots of scientific, you know, pretty uh, hefty body of research showing that when you have well-managed grazing, that maintains a dense vegetative cover And that turns out to be the key to having more organic matter in the soil and having more water, therefore, retained in the soil. In fact, there's a a statistic that the NRCS, the Natural Resources Conservation Service of the federal government, has created that says that for every 1% of organic matter in the top six inches of soil, 
you have 27,000 gallons of water per acre that you will add to that soil. So there's a very direct relationship between the amount of organic matter and the amount of water that's kept in there, and well-managed grazing land is absolutely one of the best at having a lot of organic matter in it. So it has a really clear impact with respect to how much water is retained in the soil, and then, of course, that water is available for the entire ecosystem. All of the microorganisms, all of the insects, and all of the wildlife that's there. And then the water that comes through rainfall and goes through those soils has the best filtration when it has Again, the dense vegetative cover and healthy soils. And so you'll actually get a very positive impact on water quality where you have good grazing and much less erosion. There's a great study that the Land Stewardship Project out of Minnesota did showing that you have about 80% less sediment coming off of grazing land versus a cropland. Well, I am absolutely sold on this method of cattle rearing. And not only from a nutritional standpoint, but certainly from an environmental one. Now, the other issue that you bring up here with regard to things that you think need work, and I would certainly agree with them, has to do with the amount of drugs, including hormones and antibiotics that are given to cattle. Right. Because, again, it's not just the residues that get in the food directly, but also the runoff that gets into our water supply. Exactly. But the majority are given these drugs, would you say? Yes, and that's the tragedy of the mainstream cattle industry. You know, one of the things I've told people repeatedly is that I had to write Defending Beef because the beef industry itself is so awkward at defending itself. (laughs) You know, they, they do a really bad job of it. And one thing that they're doing really badly, and they've been doing really badly for quite a while, is not listening to really legitimate concerns about mainstream practices that are problematic, you know, for the sort of the ordinary consumer. And I would say the use of drugs, especially hormones, you know, growth hormones, which is the numbers I've seen is it's about 95% of conventionally raised beef cattle receive growth hormones at some point in their lives. And often they receive it more than once because they'll receive it on the home ranch and at the feedlot. And to me, it's very clear that if you asked just any person that's standing at a meat counter in a, in a supermarket or anybody walking down the street, do you want growth hormones in your beef? They would say, oh, my gosh, no, I don't want that, right? And yet it's mainstream practice. So that's the kind of thing that, to me, it's so obvious. The industry is just kind of tone deaf on it. And it's part of what's really spurring the rising demand for something else. And I think especially in the United States, the uh, something else really is turning into grass-fed beef, totally grass-fed beef. And I don't know anybody who's doing totally grass-fed beef that uses growth hormones because it's very much a group of ranchers and farmers that are responding. You know, they're living a lot. A lot of times they're very motivated by their own personal values but are also wanting to respond to a consumer demand for something that's raised without drugs and hormones. And so pretty much I'd say close to 100% of the time, grass-fed beef is going to be raised without growth hormones. And similarly, there are other drugs that are used in mainstream cattle production. I talked about, I believe, Zilmax in the book, which is something, it's, it's sort of like a growth steroid. I think it's technically not classified as a steroid, but it acts as a steroid. It's a similar kind of compound. And it's been shown to have a lot of problems, especially for cattle uh, animal welfare, Temple Grandin, for example, is a really well-respected 
animal welfare expert has spoken specifically against the use of these beta agonists, they're called. And yet, it's become pretty widespread in the beef industry. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's being done that I think is is counter to what most people would want. Mm-hmm. Being a dietitian, as you might imagine at my conferences, the Cattlemen's Association is frequently present. And I remember being at a state dietetic association meeting in Michigan where the Cattlemen's Association came, gave a lunchtime talk, provided the food, and said there is no difference between corn-fed and grass-fed meat. And so the educational component that's coming out of these national associations, not only are they, as you say, you know, not, they've got the blinders on, they're not listening to really good data, they're also giving misinformation to healthcare providers. Yeah, and it, I, mean, I think Marion Nestle has done such a great job showing that whole link between big food industry and the funding of you know, the dietitians' conferences and all this kind of stuff and creating the opportunity for messaging and, you know, information that's really slanted in a particular way. And the tragedy about it is that when you talk about beef, for example, specifically, fundamentally, this is a really healthy food. And this is a lot of what my book is about as well. It's kind of making that argument because that, you know, that's been questioned as well. But there's no question that there's at least a reason to be concerned about these various different things that might end up as residues in the meat. And rather than just looking at the industry and self-examining and saying, we need to move away from this as an industry, there's just denial and there are these attempts to influence opinion and education and, and defending the practices. And I feel like more and more people want clean food, whether it's organic vegetables or fruits or whether it's foods from animals raised without drugs, without hormones, certainly without beta agonists, which most people don't even know what those are, you know, but they know they don't want, you know, drugs. They don't want, you know, buffed up, um, drugged animals to be in their food chain. So that to me is what I'm upset about with the cattle industry. And, and what makes me really happy is knowing that a lot of people within the cattle industry and the beef industry are reading my book. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm hoping, I'm, you know, I'm not obviously single-handedly going to have a giant influence on what happens, but you know, all these things add up, right? And I want to be one more voice saying, listen, beef is good food. But if you adulterate it, then you're going to legitimately be criticized, right? So provide this wonderful, helpful food to people, and then you don't have to be subjected to that kind of criticism. Exactly. Well, I love your book because you do provide a review of problems, but also solutions. And as a dietitian, I am happy to see you reviewing some tough issues that we need to rethink and not the least of which is the difference between corn-fed and grass-fed beef in terms of the beneficial nutrients that come along with grass-feeding. Our time, unfortunately, is up. Is there a website that you would like people to go to learn more about defending beef? Well, I have a website for myself, which is NicoletteHanNyman.com. Okay. And I have a Facebook page for Defending Beef, which is quite active. And so, you know, anybody's welcome to sign up for that. We put a lot of stuff up there about both health and nutrition and ecological questions. And we just kind of have an ongoing discussion there about a lot of the stuff we've been talking about. 
Well, I think the fact that you're an attorney makes you an even better author of a book because you do take such great time and painstaking detail to go through the different issues. I really do appreciate this book, and I encourage our readers to take a look at it, and we'll provide those web links, too, for our listeners. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. And again, Nicolette Hahn Nyman is an attorney, livestock rancher, and author most recently of Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production and the Manifesto of an Environmental Lawyer and Vegetarian-Turned-Cattle Rancher. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Nicolette, for being my guest. It was a great pleasure.